Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview a lot of recovering addicts. We do a lot of redemption stories. We do anybody that has a story of coming back, you know. I posted something online that I was interviewing you, and a lot of people had, not a lot, but a couple of people had something negative to say. And um, to be honest with you, like, when I hear your story, it really reminds me of, like, Frank Abagnale. I feel like he's not under scrutiny, uh, like the Catch Me If You Can character, because... I don't know, like people just don't see him that way. But I think because you have all this partying and stuff like that, people scrutinize you a lot more than him. You know, Frank Abagnale travels to different colleges. He does all sorts of speaking engagements. He created a new check that's harder to forge. So, you know, I always see like you guys and him very similar. Like well, in some way, I mean, in some way it was similar, some way different. But I, first of all, you know, I, I love my haters and I have very few of them. But, you know, the ones that are there are awesome because they drive engagement. And mm-hmm. at this point, if, uh, they are still caught up in what happened 30 years ago. They obviously need to look inside or in the mirror at least. Of course. Because they have a serious issue. Yeah, and I think any, like, recovering addict story, you know, anyone can go back and say, hey, look, what about this other crap you did when you were, you know, using or whatever? So you've been clean a long time. Can, Just, I, can I give it some advice to anybody yeah, listening? Sure. If you have any presence online, you post anything, do yourself a favor and don't even read the stupid comments that people put up about <laughs> you because it's very easy for people that are not – at this a long time to actually believe some of the stupid shit that people write online. There is a hater for no matter who you are. If you are relevant in any way, you're going to have haters. Mm -hmm. And haters are actually good because they increase engagement because if there's one hater, my fans will destroy them. But (laughs) most people, it can really bother them, especially young people. They start to believe the shit that the haters, the haters are just cowards who are miserable in their own life. So everyone just, you know, Mm -hmm. I would advise don't even look at your comments unless you want to respond to the positive ones. Absolutely. And you know what? There's going to be a million positive ones in two or three, you know, not so positive ones. Uh, so just so you know, so I'm a recovering addict. I got clean at 17. I was smoking crack when I was 14. I was addicted to opiates at 14. When I got out of treatment, swear to God, I got out of treatment in February of 2008. The first thing I did, one of the first things I did was go to the bookstore. And I went to the bookstore and I, I'm a big autobiography guy. And I grabbed your book. Mm. And I remember I grabbed your, and like, I could have grabbed any book. I remember I saw this book and it was The Wolf of Wall Street. And I turned over the back and I saw like, you know, gonna be a film by Leonardo, with Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, with Martin Scorsese being the, the director. And I read like a couple pages and I instantly was sold. 
Uh, I used to get everyone to read this book, and I used to tell everyone, like, it's going to be a movie one day. You guys <laughs> got to watch it. And just so you know, this is a surreal experience for me. You know, so this is something that has influenced me in my recovery, seeing that someone like you could get clean. Right. Uh, in 2008, how long were you clean at that point already? So I got sober in 1997, April 17th. Okay. So it had been quite a while, over a decade. Wow, that's cool. That's badass. So what was it like the five years before getting sentenced? Because this is how has an exit. We talk about like the nitty gritty. Everyone sees the party lifestyle. Everyone's seen the movie and the tossing of the midgets and the quaaludes and all this stuff. But like, what was it like those five years before you? Because I've heard you in other interviews saying that those five years were really rough because you didn't know what was going to happen. Right. By far were rougher than, you know, what happened after I got out of jail. Uh -huh. But I was already sober before I got in trouble. Gotcha. So I got sober about 18 months before I got indicted. So I was, okay. I was already sober. So I had already dealt with, mm -hmm. I think, probably the most difficult part, which is the first year or probably the first few months. But I was already sober, and then I got indicted. So the movie's a bit misleading like that because they kind of juggle the timeline gotcha. a bit. So, yeah. What got you sober? Like, because obviously you probably thought about getting sober many times. You mm. probably had all these people around you telling you to get sober. So what was it that really made you do that leap? For a very long time, I, most of the people around me were telling me not to get sober. It was yeah, a problem in the uh, years that led up to that. At the end, um, yeah, it was mostly the, at the time my wife was mm -hmm. very much. She was like, and she was doing drugs too, but yeah. she just wasn't as bad as me. So, you know, she was she was like the good one doing one loot a day. Uh -huh. I was I was the bad one doing 12 a day, okay. you know, on a, on a light day. What really led up to me getting sober was the love of my children. It was, it was wow. really, it was for my kids is to... Uh, Getting to a point where they were old enough to see what was mm -hmm. going on. And that was like something that just to me was like that linchpin moment when I actually acted out on being on drugs with my daughter in front of me. And that was the end yeah. of it for me. Yeah. Uh, and I've heard a lot of stories like that where people are using around their kids. And then this one moment happens to them where they just see that like, hey, this isn't what I want to bring my kid into. Right. Was there anyone clean or sober in that time who was helping you and guide you into recovery and like helping you along the way? Before I got sober. Yeah. Steve Madden was sober. Wow. Oh, that's so crazy. So you kept a strong connection with him? Well, I did during for many years. Thing? Very not in the last year, but up until the last year, we were really, really close. Yeah. And he was he was like the only sober one of the bunch. Uh, wow. and then he actually relapsed later on. Really? Yeah. How long was he sober? Oh, a long time. He was sober for I think um wow. let me see, he got sober in I think eighty eight, maybe. So he's like Jordan, you gotta like come over on this side. You know, nah, you he got... wasn't judgmental like that, really? Steve. He just I think he was fascinated by my ability to you function know, to function at a yeah. high level because he, you know, basically was using the same drugs I mm -hmm. was back before he got sober quaaludes and like they kind of yeah. destroyed his life and then he built it back up again. So I think that, you know, he was like hanging around everyone that was doing drugs and uh -huh. he wasn't doing drugs. It was wow. like, he was like that one saw thumb sticking out. Yeah, yeah. So when you actually did get sober, how difficult was it to like change people, places and things? Because I know... Even till today, I wonder, like, do people come up to you and try to get you to do coke today or something like that? You know, like, do people yeah. try to influence you now and are like, come on, just yeah, do a little bit all sure. the time? So, so not a lot, but sometimes it happens. Sometimes. But, but um, it was very easy for me to change all those circumstances around mm -hmm. me because I was still very, very wealthy and successful when it happened. Yeah. And I could sort of, so when I, I'll give you an example, when I got, the day before I got sober, I had a standing bid on quaaludes for any real quaalude from a pharmacy, either overseas pharmacy, mm -hmm. right? 50 bucks a pill. And wow. then when I got sober, the, the price crashed to $5 a pill because it was like they flooded the mall. Mm -hmm. I was buying every one, right? Uh -huh. I might be making that up. It's true. 
So when I got sober, you know, I was sort of the, the spiritual leader of this whole group of people, basically, you know. And Did other people start getting sober too? Yeah, a lot of people got sober, yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it became sort of out of fashion. Wow. To, to, um, so just for people that are listening, you know, the movie makes it seem like you were still using, then then you got arrested. No. But in real life, you were clean 18 months Absolutely. and then you got arrested. Yeah. What do you think would have happened if you were still using when they came? You know, it's really hard to say. I mean, I, I have some friends that were still using when they got arrested. They weren't able to handle it as well. No, they were because you know what happens is forced absence. Because then you're on, you know, like when you're in pretrial, yeah, yeah. even if you're out on bail, they drug test you, mm -hmm. right? And for, ironically, they never drug tested me once when wow. I was on pretrial because uh -huh. the, the guy knew I was sober. He never bothered to drug test me, you know. And so I think that it's different for everybody. But the most important thing for me was that I was done. I was ready to get sober. When yeah. you're ready to get sober, you can get sober in the yeah. best rehab in the world. You can get sober Under in the rooms of AA. Yeah, it doesn't really, course. you know, almost, for me, going to a rehab was a, an adult timeout, which mm -hmm. was important and yeah, that, you yeah. know, that helped me. Did you go to 12-step meetings for a long time? I still? did. Oh, okay, cool. I did. I chaired them in the beginning. I was very wow. active in the community for the first few years. How would you explain 12-step meeting because when i read your book i remember thinking because i remember in the book you were talking about how like uh like these people are aliens or they're just like talking all crazy and like you know people clap all the time and it just was like weird. that was the rehab yeah, was, yeah. Oh, that was the rehab yeah, the rehab was just like you know it seemed like a cult kind of right well the rehab was kind of fucked up because yeah. this was not a normal rehab this rehab was um for doctors mostly uh -huh. so people oh, like an lpm program people were not there for four weeks they were there until the staff said you're cured so everyone was like oh, just saying i'm cured weird. i'm cured running around like robots i'm cured i'm cured yeah. like it was this freaking weird orwellian uh -huh. quasi like you know you know mainland china social credit score <laughs> type of thing where everyone's watching you and if they do something wrong your score declines and then you mm -hmm. can't get back to being a doctor wow sooner you know later versus so sooner. they're just jumping the hoop so that way they can get yeah, out everyone and, was so yeah. disingenuous so much disingenuous bullshit mm -hmm. and i was above it all not because i was any better of a drug because i didn't give a fuck i was there for me yeah like i didn't need that you i was really there, to i was help. there of choice not to get a license mm -hmm. back so i was like what the fuck is with these people they're just like yeah. so full of shit and like you know like they're saying like the paw how do you feel i feel like i'm sober thank god for making me i'm like mm -hmm. I'm just shut up and be authentic yeah. you know so i was like i hate this fucking place mm -hmm. but i have to be here because i don't want to be a drug addict anymore gotcha. sort of like a different mentality what how would you explain 12-step meetings to people that have never been to them because like my whole goal in life is to make 12-step meetings seem more attractive to people to make it seem not as culty and weird to make it seem fun like what was your experience going to meetings well, some meetings are great and some meetings suck, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to find the meetings that are right for you. I mean, you always say, don't pick up a girl or a guy at an AA meeting. Of course, I broke that rule of right course. away. And my sponsor say it's like two dump trucks running into each other when you meet a person, <laughs> both you were sober for less than a year, right? Yes. But of course, I made that mistake once. And we all do. It ended poorly, but, uh, mm -hmm. but it was good at the moment, you know? Listen, I think that you have to find the right AA meeting. Number one, to me, I like rooms that have a lot of sobriety in mm -hmm. them. Like where they were well-run rooms with people that were not all newcomers. So yep. you can, you know, look and really see people that have long-term sobriety. I remember when I first got sober and I, on the way to rehab, I was intervened on and on the way to the rehab. I was like, how do you guys, I don't get it. How do you guys stay sober? Like 10 years sober? How do you, <laughs> they're like one day at a time. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, go fuck yourself. How do you really stay sober? Yeah. They're like, no, one day at a time. And I was like, I couldn't quite wrap my arms around that concept. Concept, but I think that when you go to the rooms of AA and you see all that long-term sobriety, you know, you mm -hmm. see people that have been doing it for a long time and how great their lives are. You also see new people that have fucked up their lives are. So you get you gotta you kind of see all the different yeah. things and the new people remind the old people how fucked up it'll be if yep. they relapse. So there's a lot of that going there's on. There's an old timer that used to say, Y'all 
you are all my teachers. Yeah. Some of you teach me what not to do, and mm. some of you teach me what to do. Yeah. You know, and I feel like, you know, I try to explain the 12-step program as like the gym. Like, I saw someone the other day, and they were like, man, did you know that I went to a meeting and some people were high? And I was just like, no shit, you know? Yeah, well, it was common. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, could you imagine going to the gym and being like, hey, I went to the gym, some people were fat. You know what I mean? It's like the right. same concept. When you see a heavy person in the gym, you don't look down at them. You're like, wow, that guy's really trying to fight lose, for his life, lose you right. know, lose weight. It's like inspiring. Yeah, it's good analogy. You yeah. know, when you go to a meeting and you see someone high, you shouldn't be like, oh, look at that loser. He's here high. It's yeah. kind of like, wow, that person's high. I don't know how many meetings you went to high, but when I was using, I never went to meetings. You know what I mean? No, I, wasn't, I, mean, no, I mean, like, I think that's, a, I think that people in AA, if you're in, if you're in a real a room that really mm -hmm. is like a real room, yeah, uh, they, they are going to embrace you if you're high 1, and they're going to, they're going to support you and not judge you because 1, they've all been there. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I think you're right about that. I think it's a great analogy. Thank you. And, and at the same time, it's like, you know, that's what we're here for. The whole purpose of that meeting is to help the person that needs it the most, you know, and they actually consider that person the most important person in the room. That, and that's like a thing that people don't understand. They don't understand that it's not really like something that you go to, like some pretentious thing. It's really like this humble type of thing. And that if you do go high, the people that have been there long term is going to circle and surround that person kind of like a family. Let me ask you something. So, you know, I've always been into into books and movies. How difficult was it writing the the book? Because you wrote it in jail, right? No, I, I, I taught myself to write in jail. So I, I started uh, writing after I was in jail for about maybe a month. And I was very, very poor writer in the beginning. And then I stumbled upon this book called Bonfire of the Vanities. And I uh -huh. used that book as a textbook to teach me how to write. I just wow. kind of ripped apart the strategy. So I spent about, you know, really six months to a year really teaching myself the how skill. How to write first. Had the skill of writing. This is a skill to do yeah. it right. And then I got to about a page 130 and then I ripped everything up. And it's before I left jail, so that's not good enough because I didn't think it was good wow. enough. Someone actually put those pages back together and sent them. We I still uh -huh. have them now, and they're pretty interesting to read. It's an early version of my writing. And then uh, when I got out of jail, I was back to page one, and I started writing. I wrote 10 pages, and, and I, I was like, wow, those are a lot better than I remembered writing in jail. Mm -hmm. and, and that was how I started. So I still really started writing the book right as I got out of jail. Right when you got out. That's interesting. So as somebody who writes and you know enjoys reading and stuff, like, how did you go from writing this thing on a piece of paper to getting into like real bookstores, you know? Right. So, so when I started writing, first thing I do did was I, I sent it out to a few friends, uh -huh. and I was like to see what they would think, right? And they all three called me back with these like crazy responses, like, "Oh my god, it's like amazing!" Uh -huh. And I was like, "Really? Like, cause, you know, it's your writing. You don't. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to judge your own writing, you know." And mm -hmm. uh, and one of them was actually my sponsor in AA, very oh, wealthy cool. man from Long Island, and he. I, call, he picked, I pick up the phone on Malone. He's like, he's like, ah, oh, oh, oh. and him and his wife are just like laughing out loud. Wow. I'm like, you like, he goes, I don't like it. He goes, I love it. He goes like, wow. I can't believe you wrote this. Wow. I'm like, well, I wrote it. He goes, I, I can't believe it's so good. I was like, wow, really? He was super rich. He's like, listen, whatever money you need, I'll give you, like, I was broke. Because uh -huh. I'll give you as much as you want to, to write, go just write this book. So I sent the book, the next day I sent these 10 pages out to an agent in mm -hmm. Hollywood who specializes in getting books sold and made into movies. Mm -hmm. And I sent him the first 10 pages and he calls me back. Just 10 pages? That's 10 crazy. 10 pages. I sent him the first 10 pages and he's like, who the fuck wrote those pages? Mm -hmm. He's like, did Tom Wolfe write those pages? I was modeling Tom mm -hmm. Wolfe, the writer. 
He's like, no, no, I wrote it myself. He's like, bullshit. I said, no, I really wrote it myself. He's like, I don't believe it goes right 10 more pages. So uh -huh. I spent about a week and I wrote another 10 pages. I sent him the, the second 10 and he says to me, he goes, just stop everything that you're doing. He goes, I want you to just trust me here. You don't understand how famous you're about to become. I was like, really? He's like, I don't think you understand how Did good this is. Did you believe him? I didn't until he said, and I'm going to get Leonardo DiCaprio to play you in a movie directed by Martin Scorsese. He said that after 20 pages. He said it after 20 pages. He said it. Jesus. And uh, I just thought that, I was like, wow. I was like, and I, I never had written before. And I, I was wondering if I could ever finish the book because mm -hmm. it was taking me a really long time just to write 10 pages, yeah. right? So I called up my friend. I said, I think I'm going to do this. He goes, how much you want? And he has maybe like half a million. He wired me half a million dollars. He's a friend of mine, very rich guy. Rich mm -hmm. guy. He goes, just take the money. Just lock yourself. So I had a little bit of money and I locked myself in my house and I didn't have any human contact for probably almost 11 months except, for my, except for my children. My children yeah. would come over and they watched me just sit there in the corner and write this book. And I did a few other things in the beginning that were pretty smart. Like I mm -hmm. backed myself into a corner by, I started telling people I knew I'm going to write a bestseller. Yeah. So I had no Accountability. choice. Yeah. Like yeah. I sort of made it so like I had no choice but to live up to the promises made to my children and so forth. And then by the time I got to page 60, I sent the first 60 pages now to this agent. Mm -hmm. His name is Joel Gottler. He's a big agent in Hollywood. And Joel read the 60 pages. He goes, I'm, I'm fucking blown away. I'm going right into the New York City. I'm going to sell this book for a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he went down into the city and bam, Random House bought the book wow. for more than the guy had advanced me the money. So right. And so suddenly I was like, wow. I was like, that was easy. <laughs> like for first book is like, I, mean, I couldn't believe it. Right. Yeah. And then I sat down with their editor who uh, was a phenomenal editor, Danielle Perez. And she like made me sort of, okay, let's come up with chapters. So she made me put into like, you know, come up with chapter ideas. Mm -hmm. And I had a structure for the book. And then I wrote the book over a period of about 11 months months and the a draft was the first draft was 1200 pages wow and i went through seven edits to get it down to 538 who did you envision playing you before they told you to be leonardo DiCaprio? i thought maybe like a young tom cruise like from uh movie a uh, rain man when he was like selling <laughs> yeah. the cars like the yeah. gray walker i thought that would be a great guy okay. to play me you know there already been a movie about my company that was where i was played by ben affleck the boiler room uh -huh, that boiler guy worked room. Yeah, to me yeah. right so that was like very loosely based on the whole company yeah, yeah, so is Boiler Room related to your story? Yeah, well, the guy it was about wow. Stratton in a really loose, yeah, loose way. In a loose way. And I thought it was okay. And Did they ever, like, ask you about it? No, when, when it came out, like, I started getting Google alerts, when, like, they're saying it's about my life. And uh -huh. I was like, that's not really my life, but yeah, it's way cool. whatever. <laughs> and uh, they're taking a bus. We didn't take a fucking bus anywhere. They're taking a bus to Atlantic City. But anyway, but, yeah. you know, it was sort of, it was an interesting movie. But I was thinking that, you know. Boiler Room shaped my life. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so, that was like, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff in there that just wasn't an act. Of but course. It was, it was interesting course. to see part of it, right? Yeah, so I think I think Leo was like, when the movie, when the book was done and it got passed out to Leo and Brad Pitt and George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg, it was a bidding war between Mark between uh, all three, Mark Wahlberg, Brad Pitt, and Leo. And uh -huh. at the time, Wahlberg wasn't as big a star. Now he's a huge star. Yeah. He was just getting started back then, right? And I love him. He was great. But uh came down to Leo and Brad Pitt. And each one of them said, whatever he pays you, I'll pay you 10% more. Wow. So the bidding war went up and up and up over a weekend. And finally, Leo brought... Scorsese to the picture, mm -hmm. and I just so Scorsese Leo. wasn't a part of it up until that point. Not not until that. You point. You didn't know who the director was going to be. 
Well, I didn't know there was even going to be a movie. I mean, I wrote that you don't write it. When you write a book. You don't think about it really becoming a movie. Well, I mean, the chances of it becoming a movie. For, okay, so the chances of it like being sold to a publisher are like one in a million. Yeah. The chances of it then being bought by a studio are one in a ten million. Yeah. And then the chances of it actually being made to be one in a billion. Yeah. Because it's such a long shot. So even when Leo attaches himself, it's still a one in 10,000 mm -hmm. shot that he's going to actually make And then something. it could get shelved. People buy right. the rights of movies and well, then they happened, never make happened. it. Yeah. It did happen to me for a while. Yeah, because I remember telling everyone the movie going to come out yeah. and then like it never the came difference, out. The yeah. difference was is that when Leo bought the book rights mm -hmm. through Warner Brothers, he came to my house and he said to me, listen, I buy a lot of projects. He goes, this is different. Mm -hmm. This is my passion project. I am going to play you. I will get this done. Have faith in me. I promise you. He looked me in the eye. He goes, I promise you I'm going to get this done. So it was never a normal project for Leo. And he, and every time a friend of mine would run into Leo and they would say- Who's he, more convincing, you or Jordan, or you or Leonardo? Well, I taught Leo the straight, the straight line, I taught Leo the straight line yeah. system. I bet you could teach me how to act, but wow. but um, I taught him how to sound like he, the way he, I, mm -hmm. I worked with him for a year and he's yeah. an amazingly talented person, but we went through with the sales stuff line by line, mm -hmm. the tonalities and everything like that. So the reason he sounds so authentic is because he did a lot of work. He didn't, yeah. have, Leo's a very hardworking guy, very diligent guy. He doesn't just say, oh, I'm, I'm Leo, I'm gonna be successful. He yeah. works really hard at what he does. So. Um, I said, well, I guess it's better than having Danny DeVito play you, right? I mean, you know, nothing against Danny DeVito. I love Danny DeVito. And yeah, everything, he but, was going to play Jonah Hill's but, character, yeah, right? Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so it was sort of, it was a bit surreal with Leo, but I, I was, you know, 100% certain that he was going to make the movie because he looked yeah. me in the eye and gave and me his word. His and he's, word. Got, he's got a very good reputation, Leo, for, for, yeah. for honesty. And, uh... And sure enough, we, it took a while to get mm -hmm. it done, but we got it done. I read on IMDb that Jonah Hill got hospitalized for snorting too much vitamins. Nah. You, is that true? I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like a lie, but oh, I, yeah. but, uh, it's but, uh, on the trivia. It's on the trivia part of your movie where it says that Jonah Hill had to, got hospitalized after the movie because he was snorting what, what, like too diarrhea much diarrhea or something. What I don't know. Well, you guys snorting vitamin B12 back in the movie? Mostly it's, a, you know, it's interesting because I, I I actually played a practical joke on a friend of mine who's got a podcast and uh -huh. uh, he's sober and it's uh, my friend Jeff Beecher and uh, and he does a podcast with- um, You fake snorted coke in front of him? I know. I, no, no, no. What I did is I actually, it's with Kelly Osborne and him on a podcast, yeah, yeah. right? She's, and, and, she's sober a long yeah. time. And before I went in there, I went out and got some like um like a baby egg pouted like um vitamin C. It looks just like uh -huh. Coke, right? And I may play a joke and then like I'm but at ten I relapse. Yeah, yeah. Right. So right before oh, I so right great. before I walk into the pockets, I go into the bathroom and I like I spend all this time like just getting it just right so there's a mm -hmm. little white shit hanging like off my you get mm -hmm. it like not too much because it's obvious yeah. but just enough to right down and I what walk they say? and I just walk in like all right guys I'm like let's fucking go we gotta we gotta, we gotta be on target today because we're gonna make a debt in you and I started like just <laughs> acting really fucking wired yeah, yeah. I'm like you ready guys I'm like, and they're like they were fucking petrified they're looking at each other they're like okay and like they didn't and like I'm like I'm wondering if they're gonna call me out or they were too fucking scared and they wow. you know they're texting and I'm like and they. Turns out they were texting each other. Like, what the fuck are we uh -huh. gonna do? We, he relapsed, right? So I'm sitting there, come on, wow. ask me any question. Ask me anything. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it's hot here, because don't put anything. <laughs> and then finally they're like, I'm like, guys, you it's understand I'm just totally fucking with you. They're wow. like, oh my God. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Did you all really toss midgets? I, I didn't toss a midget. <laughs> we discussed it. So here's what happened. We were, we it started off we had midgets at a party with sombreros uh -huh. and chips and dip and shit, right? And like walking around, like you know, using them as like as like walking fucking trays for serving. So right? they would have sombreros and you'd have chips, chips and, and dips. Dip. Yeah, 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 right. And then we were always looking to come up with like the latest act of depravity. It's like the Roman mm -hmm. policy. What can we do to entertain the masses, right? And and this was an idea that was discussed in very very great detail 
I wasn't there when it happened. So, you know, I was strategically absent when it went down. Yeah. Yeah, I went to a bachelor. People do not, half, by the way, if you ask people, to try to, <laughs> half will say it happened and half will say it, it, this is the, the funniest thing. Yeah. Like, if you ask them, what's the truth? There's mm-hmm. two truths to this. People will say, yeah, I was there. I was like, it never fucking happened. It's like, it's I was at a bachelor party with like 10 years in recovery and uh, they had midget toss in there. And I remember feeling kind of bad. Like, you know, this is kind of fucked up, but the midget was no, totally, no, there no, was no. like totally into Dude, it. Let me just tell you something. The midgets, first of all, they're getting paid a fucking bloody fortune yeah. for this shit. And they're all, they're fucking awesome. They're, they're like indestructible yeah. too, by the way. Yeah. Like the movie you know, says. I felt bad, but not bad enough to not toss the midget. You know what I mean? But like it was it I was think it's fun. banned by the Geneva Convention. It's a human rights violation. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, maybe it's I just, didn't. Maybe I didn't uh, toss the no, midget. Well, it's no, it's stupid. No, it's stupid because honestly, it's like if, if Mitch is going to make $5,000 to get tossed, tossed and he wants to yeah. do it, and it's, and it's on totally a, it's, safe. It's, all it's on a bed mattress. He's got the whole thing. You know, no, it's done. like whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, listen. I'm not saying I recommend this to everybody out there, or I, I'm not engaged in this uh-huh. competition right now. But I think in the <laughs> in the general act of things that happen to Stratton, it's probably kind of low on the totem yeah, pole for bad. the worst things that happened. You know, what I'm mm-hmm. saying it was far worse than that. That went down. It was still pretty humane. But yeah, I mean, you know, they got paid. Yeah, you we were enslaving them, and that was the point. Exactly. You know? And you're giving them a job. What books did you read early on that kind of influenced you? Like, did you ever read any, like... For writing? To write or just to... In motivational books. Like, did you ever read, like, a yeah. book? The one book that I think probably had more impact on me than all the others combined was a book called Thinking Grow Rich. Yeah, yeah, of course. By Napoleon Hill. Yeah. And that was just a great book on the mindset of success. And, yeah. And it's sort of, it was, it was this sort of crossover because, like, you know, to me, the secret can be very Who toxic. Who told you about that book? It was a well-known it was, book. It just, was a well-known book. Yeah. You go into the bookstore, it was there at the time. You know, I don't know if anyone told me about it. Just, it was a well-known book. And I think that, like, what I, what I like about that is that it sort of bridges the gap between some of the nonsense from The Secret, which mm-hmm. really is about manifesting success. Yeah, and I'm versus, not a fan like, of The Secret. Well, like, you, I'm a fan of the idea behind The Secret. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is the way it's written and the way it's misused by people is it's a, sort of the lazy man's it's like way of magic. getting success. It's also, it, like... To me, it's I like the more of like the bust your ass and work until like your eyeballs the, bleed mentality. But the, the point is, is that the, the 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 highest level of the secret is is not mutually exclusive with mm-hmm. that. I believe the secret is true, but you have to bust your ass for it to happen. Yes. The idea of the secret is that you visualize yes. and you manifest mm-hmm. what you think about, which is true, but not it's because it, not it. because it just jump, jumps out of the universe. Mm-hmm. It's because well, the way your brain works is that when you're thinking of something and you're visualizing it, it is a signal to your conscious mind to focus on those mm-hmm. things around me of that course. are congruent with that opportunity. So it's you start like moving you, in the direction yeah. of the things that you it's want. It's the in same life. thing when you've never seen a car before and someone's like, "Oh, that's the new Ferrari F8," and now you start seeing them all over the place exactly the same so it thing. heightens your awareness 100%. about what you should be moving towards now if you read the book and think you get to sit on your couch and wish for a bag of money yeah. to hit you on the head good fucking luck Not gonna but happen. the idea is that you sit on your couch and, and you know praying for certain things to manifest themselves and then you move towards mm-hmm. those things in the real world then that's a very powerful strategy so think and grow rich tony robbins has this bit that i saw him do where he was saying that you know he had read the book and he had read all these other books and he's talking to his mentor and he's like i don't know what to do i've read all these books and his mentor mentor looks at him and he's like, well, why don't you read Think and Grow Rich? And he's like, I've read it. And he goes, how many times? And he's like, I've read it once. He's like, I've read it 10 times. I'm rich, you're broke. Go read it again, you know? So a lot of times people think they're going to read one book and then it's going to like, aha, you know? Well, I think everyone is different. Like, I think like, you know, some people go to an AA room and they get it the first time. Mm -hmm. 
So we'll have to go back a bunch of times. Yeah. So some of it is when you're ready mm-hmm. to accept the information. If you're not ready to accept the information, you could read it and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's a good concept. Mm-hmm. But you're not internalizing it and acting on it. For so sure. the think, thinking grow rich only works if you're willing to act on the information. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people read it. He probably read it at the time, Tony. He's obviously a very became a very yeah. action-oriented individual. And he probably just read it passively. Oh, mm-hmm. This is really interesting information. Let me make a note of that shit versus... Mm-hmm really using this stuff in the real, because it's very powerful. What the thinking gorge doesn't do is give you strategies, mm-hmm. but it sets you up to go learn those strategies and shows you how, where, and when to find them. 1,000%. Yeah, I think that book is phenomenal. If you haven't read it, you're going you to read it. What qualities does your sponsor have for you to pick them? He was rich. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. For me, I needed to. I needed. I needed someone. someone I, I had tremendous to. respect for him. Mm-hmm. Tremendous respect. Of all the people I saw in AA, he stuck out as far and above the sagest. Everyone loved him. He was very successful, and he had the most fucked up story, just like <laughs> me. Like he was like a, a villain. This guy. He was a terrible human being. He would say, "I'm a terrible, most awful person." And I think to the day, I think he's still alive. But he spent the rest of his life making up for that by helping wow. people. He's a really good guy, but he was just incredible. Great speaker. He was so. I remember like hanging on his everywhere. He had this gigantic fucking head, like Fred Fred, Fred <laughs> stuff, right? And he was on TV. He was the guy that you probably have seen this guy yeah. back in the day. He used to have these commercials at three in the morning. What are you fucking doing in your, are you up right now? You shouldn't be up. You need to come to see, and he had this commercial scene. I was like, holy, it's like scary looking yeah, at the yeah. guy, right? Great guy. And I just resonated with his story, with his comeback mm-hmm. and uh, everything about him. Wow, that's cool. What things did he teach you? If you could he told me many, many things. I mean, he, you know, I think the most important thing that he used to say to me, the, you know, yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift. That's what we call it the present. Mm-hmm. That was his sort of philosophy in life that like you can't, change the past you don't know what's going to happen in the future but right now you're in the moment you today's a gift you'll make the most of it that was like mm-hmm. one of his overarching philosophies for life of course you know and he was also just a i think the other thing that he showed me was he showed me a side of of being sober that was a very empowered side mm-hmm. it wasn't a disempowered yeah because a side. lot of times people have these commercials or whatever like oh you're gonna go to a 12-step meeting and they're gonna teach you how to be powerless but that's not really what i see when i go to meetings i see a people no. that have taken their power back yeah he just was like this sort of uh he was truly amazing guy, the mm-hmm. most flawed human being you could meet mm-hmm. really a very flawed person and he'd be the first person to tell you that but he was also the most amazing person and yeah. what he did with his flaws and how he changed his life mm-hmm. and uh you know, just really, I got a lot of respect for him. What type of assignments did he give you? Because I would imagine him sponsoring you, he's trying to bring your ass down. He's trying to, like, get rid of that ego and, you know, all this, like, pretentious stuff. He's trying to let I mean, you know he lost, like, 100 equal. grand to my company, by the way. Which, <laughs> oh, yeah? Which he thought was hysterical because wow, he was worth a few hundred million. Mm-hmm. But he's like, oh, he's like that sort of guy. Listen, he was, um, wow. more than anything, he was, like, his other famous expression was, yeah, I know. You suffer from terminal uniqueness. Yeah. Because you're just like terminal everyone. Unique. Like, you know, yep. this idea that you're just like everyone else. That was like a big one. But also like this, the pragmatic idea that success, sobriety, it's not a destination. It's what you bring to it every day. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like day by day mentality. He was still going to six meetings a week and he never, wow. like he never let his guard down, so to speak. He taught me that, you know, you could live sober and be awesome because mm-hmm. he was awesome. Not mm-hmm. so like it wasn't this weird like oh you got to like not have fun and yeah like, like some... it's just a weird it's a misconception about being sober. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, when I first got clean, there was this guy who got clean at 18, and he was super successful. And I remember I used to see him around. He drove, like, a nice car. He'd always in a suit. And uh, super funny. And I remember he came up to me. I was 17 years old, and he, he came up to me after the meeting, and he grabbed me. And he's like, how old are you? I said, I'm 17. And he grabbed me closer. He whispered in my ears, and he goes, if you get clean now, you got the world by the balls, kid. Mm. And that was a totally different message than my probation officers, totally different message than the you know police, my family. Unless you get so now you'll be dead by 25. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of what people were kind of saying, yeah. you know. You know, I'm trying to like, you know, have that message, you know, live on. How was it mending your relationship with your family? Because I know for most addicts, that's like the hardest part is that, you know, you could get the cars back and you can get like all these other things back. But mending that relationship back with your family is usually the hardest thing. I mean, that was for me. That was, that very was easy. easy for me. I mean, I, I think, you know, there was a lot of things that I did that were very self-destructive and they were somewhat destructive mm -hmm. to the people around me. But I think that I also... You know, I had a very high bottom, as it's called. Like, I wasn't in the street stealing. Yeah. Like, couldn't you, you, like, there's some really bad shit that happens when you have a low bottom, when you really, like, you're running out of money, and then you're in mm -hmm. this desperation mode. And I think a great movie that depicted that was Less Than Zero. Of course. You know, it really shows what, when someone goes bad yeah. from a good, right? And I just didn't have- And he went into that after that movie. Yeah. He and, became and exactly, that character. I know, right. Yeah. Really crazy, right? So for me, it's like, I, I was still like, everybody was, I was providing the- financial support for everybody around me, not mm -hmm. just my own family, but like thousands and thousands of people worked at my company. Yeah. So it was sort of like everyone, like they had this weird sort of respect for me and holy shit, the guy's like out of his mind sort mm -hmm. of thing. You know, I think the one thing is with my wife at the time, you know, she's like the ultimate victim. You know, she'll, if you ask her, oh, I was a victim. And she's just, <laughs> just fucking nonsense. You know, yeah. she, she, she tries to play the victim card, which I think is really sad because she was the furthest thing from that. She mm -hmm. was part and parcel with me the whole way partying. And I think it's a more, I think she'd be a more empowering individual if she just said, hey, I was fucked up too and I'm clean now and of I course. learned from the mistakes. She was an asshole, I was an asshole. But so I, I think with my relationship with her never could recover, but it wasn't because yeah. of the drugs. It was because of the two of us were just not meant to be together. Mm -hmm. But other than her, my relationship with my kids is unbelievable now. I mean, it's really- Yeah, I see them on, on your Instagram. So yeah, that's yeah, really I'm cool. really close with my children. Yeah. And I'm very lucky, you know, um, I think that sometimes, you know, you do things when you're high and mm -hmm. if you really fuck the people over in your family, that can be, take many years to repair. Yeah. But most things can be repaired. 1,000%. Have people reached out to you like super elite athletes or people in the, in the financial world to do interventions or talk to a guy? Because I'm sure when you're in that upper echelon of society, you don't have respect for nobody until, unless they're like kind of an equal. Sure. Do people call you yeah, about that I've stuff? people, many people, but interestingly enough, mostly I've, I've it's been for... Um, interventions, not for drugs, but for comebacks. I've had gotcha. really, really famous people, really famous mm -hmm. people that have fallen from grace in some way, whether through a scandal or mm -hmm. something, not so much drug addiction. And then, yeah, hey, you know, let's talk and, and try to help. You know, what did you do? How did you make this mm -hmm. comeback? But I, I think that I probably am the mentor without meeting them for like hundreds of thousands of drug addicts yeah. around the world. Cause I get the emails and the thank yous yeah, yeah. from all the, the people that were saying, wow, I was in jail or I was fucked up. I read your book and I see your life now. And mm -hmm. I just, it's like, it's my guiding light is your life. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? People can look at my life. So I, I think like I, my mentor was Tom Wolf. He taught me how to write. Mm -hmm. I never met him. Yeah, I was in jail, but I still used him as a mentor, and still so I think give him accolades. That, exactly, now. so I think that you know people I probably I mean probably millions maybe even people that were drug addicts that read my book, see my life, and used yeah. my story to empower themselves, which is awesome. That's awesome. 
Let me ask you something. You think you're a better salesman now or back in the day? You think you're getting better over time? Well, I mean, I think that from a skill level, probably kind of reached the pinnacle of my game somewhere in my 30s, mm-hmm. right? And I probably slightly marginal improvements here and there, but I'm much lazier than I used to be. <laughs> like part of sales, seriously, no, yeah, like yeah. sales, to be the top salesperson in the world, mm-hmm. in the world it's like, like it's 90% hard work. Yeah. Like I was such an insanely hard worker when I was young. Mm-hmm. Like I would do things I would never do now because I'm thankfully too wealthy and too successful. And, yeah. and I don't, I'm just past that point in my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm the first one to admit that if you want to say who's the best salesperson in the world, it's probably the guy who works the hardest out mm-hmm. there that has a reasonable level of skill. That mm-hmm. person's going to, you know, you can, I teach a system called the straight line. It's very powerful. It takes people and makes them great. But those same people, you got to find the ones that really put in the effort and knock on the doors or pick up the phone or do mm-hmm. the networking. Those are the ones that become the top closers in the world. So gotcha. I would put myself at the age when I, okay, how about this? When I lost all my money, when I got in trouble at 30, 36 years old, mm-hmm. I went out and started selling mortgages. I would put myself against any human in the world yeah. that was selling mortgages at the time. There's no one could have outclosed me then because uh-huh. I was hungry, I was into it, and I was wow. using every skill I had. Nowadays, if someone says, let me think, I'm like, have a nice day. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like next, this is like, I don't want to deal uh, with it. You just want the lay down. I'll let my kids deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I'm only looking for lay downs uh-huh. now. Uh, let me ask you something. How much money were you making at 25? Million a week. Million a week, yeah. 52 million a year. That's crazy. More than, like a million a week cash, but yeah. made a lot more in like paper when you're mm-hmm. buying companies. If you walked in, let's say, you know, Jordan Belfort now was able to walk into an elevator and bump into 25-year-old Jordan Belfort, what do you think you can sell him as to why he should stop living his life the way he's living now? Do you think that's unsellable? Do you think that he wouldn't listen? Like, what could you really say to yourself at that time that would really try to get him to change? It's a good question. I mean, I think that it could be very difficult Okay, so look, it's a hypothetical. If it was me looking at him, it's like, you know, hey, th- dude, let me just tell you what's going to fucking happen here. You know, obviously, I could say thank you, and I wouldn't do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, if it was that, like mm-hmm. a time machine sort of thing. But if a stranger- Yeah, you can't like, tell him you, you can't you, tell him it's you. I can't that, tell like, him it's me, that's right? That's the so, code so, of time I, travel. I think at the age of 20, right, it could cause a <laughs> break in the fabric of <laughs> yeah, reality, yeah. right? Like fucking uh, Loki, yes, the variants, right? Exactly. So, so um, I think that if I was going to, tell someone else just like me right now, what Mm -hmm. I would say to them is that number one, it's not too late to change direction. In other words, I was on a direction when I was 25, 26, that was 90% okay and 10% was it veered off course. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I was just committing crime, it wasn't. It was very, very minor. The crimes I was doing happened all over Wall Street, and nowadays the crypto, there's a, it's, cra- it's, there's it's, a crazy gray area. No, I know, but also but today yeah. it's like legal. They all, it's crypto, just everyone's oh, doing it's this. Insane. It's just like, it yeah. became normal. The mistake I made, well, let's say the mistaken belief I had is I felt at a certain point that it had gone too far. This is how it's going. And there's nothing I can really do mm-hmm. to stop it. It's bigger than me. I felt like I had lost control of it because it got so big, so fast, there was so many people involved. And that was untrue. That was a false belief I had. Gotcha. And I had sort of felt like I was sort of in this direction doing a certain thing and I could have stopped it. Listen, I had Steve Madden's shoes was the third IPO I ever did. It ended up being mm-hmm. an $8 billion company. That deal alone, I own 85% and of it's it. A legit I could have made three or four billion yep. on that one deal. Like, so was, what happened was I, I should have slowed down and just said, stop, not smuggle my money to Switzerland. Mm-hmm. But like at the time, 
it's like one foot in front of the other. And you think you're on this path. And that's probably what I said. Listen, you know, you could stop right now and change direction and go just a little bit to the right and everything mm -hmm. will be fine. Yeah, 1000%. Because you still could have just been like, look, you're doing some gray area stuff. You could have just not you done it. That. And, I could have stopped and a little bit less money doing, and anything, yeah, a little 10 less times money, more money than 10 the long times run. more two years later. Exactly. Yeah. But then you'd have, do you think you would have been able to get off drugs without... What? You eventually got off drugs without getting arrested or anything? No, I did get off drugs. Without, yeah. It's not that. It's, I, I think that it's easy to... Here's the thing. People say, do you have regrets? I say, no. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I don't feel bad. Some people of lost course, money. Absolutely. But I'm saying I don't think it's healthy to live with regrets. Mm -hmm. And also, I wouldn't change a single thing that happened because it's my life. And yeah. you know, my life is today fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. I have an amazing life. I love what I do. I have the honor and the obligation and the, also the awesomeness of having people know me and look up to me all over the world, young people, mm -hmm. right? So that's awesome. It's great. I make a lot of money doing it. And it's a platform I've developed for giving people, you know, hopefully solid wisdom about life and success versus a lot of, of the nonsense that you see online right now. There's so much nonsense that it's And there's insane. all these fakes and wannabes fake gurus, and okay, fake gurus, sign up to my business course or whatever. I never, I never, and, and I think, you know, we, we brought by a guy who used to work for me and he knows, Joel, he knows that like, I never once, I knew I could have, I refused to ever do a business opportunity. Mm -hmm. Even though I knew that I could have made $50 million by biz the straight line. But I refused to do it because I said it's not legitimate. Like I'm mm -hmm. teaching someone a skill. But when you say, oh, you don't have to learn how to sell. You can just sell sales courses to other people and that whole. That's, so yeah. that, that aspect of online is very troublesome to me. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you something. You ever think about, because I was thinking this on the way here. Like your movie and your writing is so good. You ever think about just writing movies and selling movies? So I, that was my, my original plan. So originally, so I wrote the first book, I wrote the second book, and then um, I was commissioned for two. And then um, I was like, well, I'm just going to be a writer. The only problem is I hate writing. <laughs> like, I fucking hate it. Like, I, I hey, really, if there's enough money at the end of the rainbow, you yeah, might. Really, you know. really. But, you know, it's not about that because there's a lot of ways to make a lot of money. And yeah. I didn't enjoy it enough. And I love speaking. Gotcha. So, you know, I wrote a third book and it was a huge bestseller. Again, The Way of the Wolf. And I mm -hmm. still get checks from all the books today. But... It, you know, I was a grueling year of writing that book. So to me, I was approached by, I had a deal with, um, it was Universal for another book called uh, The Mortgage Man. It was going to be about the mortgage crisis. And I started writing this book and I was just so miserable writing the book. Mm -hmm. And I just stopped. I said, you know what? Fuck it. There's yeah. no amount of money that's make it so like I'm not happy <laughs> while I'm doing yeah, it, yeah. you know? So how was uh, your understanding of like a higher power when you started going to meetings? So I think to me, it wasn't so much like I looked at it as a higher power, like God sitting mm -hmm. in a chair with white robes or anything like that. It was more about like, there's something greater than myself. Like I, it was more about like being, I'm not in control of this whole thing. And like, I just mm -hmm. have to like, not, you know, you just can't will yourself into sobriety. It mm -hmm. just doesn't work that way. So for me, it was almost like the rooms of AA were my higher power for a while. You yeah. know, I just used that as a sort of a way of like saying, yeah, you rely on the power of that. But I, you know, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't, I don't think that like, I believe that we're masters of our own destiny. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I think there's a, a force greater than us, but it's hard to verbalize it. So for me, I just, you know, I didn't focus on that. I focused a lot on step one. Mm -hmm. All right. You know, and that was, you know, empower yourself with drugs and alcohol, right? You know, that was the big one. And once I admitted that, it became a lot easier. Awesome. Real quick, what is your craziest gambling story? My craziest gambling story because was... Because I saw that you were gambling a lot. 
I was. I did. I used to gamble. I don't gamble anymore because it's just too annoying. It's awesome. But because <laughs> it, it's too annoying. Well, you know, it yeah, it's like, you know, it's a deck is stacked against me. I can't, I hate that, right? <laughs> but I mean, I think the craziest story is I have a couple of them. I mean, one of them is I went to a, we used to go to the Atlantic City a lot because uh -huh. it was close to New York. We used to get a helicopter for mm -hmm. 20 minutes, right? So once we were, it was all, it was me and Danny and, Steve Madden, this guy named Elliot Levine, complete degenerate, right? <laughs> and one of a friend, my friend Brian Herman, another mm -hmm. huge gamble. I mean, we went there and we were snorting so much cocaine in the helicopter and we're so looted out that by the time Danny had this thing, he like, he used to get like lockjaw. He like, yeah, take yeah. one hit and he'd be like, mm, he couldn't fucking That's talk. That's what he, happens to me. He'd get lockjaw, right? And and like by the time we landed in, in uh, AC on the roof of the Trump castle, back then it was a castle, he was so, he could barely walk and talk. He was like stumbling down and, and we all started gambling and I started playing, playing craps. It was a really good craps player, like, you know, uh -huh. a couple of hundred thousand on the table, right? And Danny walks over and he puts his chips down. And they're like, I'm sorry, sir, you know, you, you can't play. I'm like, he's got cerebral fucking palsy. Like, oh, I'm so sorry, <laughs> sir. Make room. And he's like, they're like, thank you very much. And Danny uh -huh. like fucking sits there and, and then we gamble on that. I probably won a quarter million dollars that night. But he's really got night. a lot yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's funny. Final question. So, you know, everyone thinks it's like, you know, great that you got off drugs. And I think it's awesome. You're, you know, got an inspirational story. But I think it's even more fascinating that you were also this crazy wild bachelor and had all these different women, obviously, in the book. And now it seems like you're in a committed relationship. How did you go from being the guy that, like, can swindle any girl to, hey, I just want to be with one girl or, you know, want to be in a relationship? I think on some level. You like matured out of it or something? Well, no, or? I, I think that like there's Jordan and there's Jordan on drugs, you know? Like, you know, you give me cocaine and, yeah. uh, you know, you know, I'm going to end up probably in, in, a, in a brothel somewhere and, you know, hoping to have the, the dirtiest one sitting on my yes, face or something. I'm a terrible, awful human being on cocaine, like mm -hmm. terrible. And people say, ew, ask anyone on coke what I just said. They'll say, yeah, me too. It's yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's this terrible, degenerate mm -hmm. drug that makes you do awful sexual things and it all seems okay. And like, it's like, mm -hmm. like to think about it now is like just so bad, but back then it was so great, right? You know, so number one, it was easy once I got sober. Cause like you just, a lot of the acts were all yeah. in the process of being, and you know, being high. Then also I think that just with age, you know, I always say like I did my best dating after I got married mm -hmm. the first time, right? You know, <laughs> and also, you know, the idea that when I suddenly got very wealthy and I came into myself as a man, I started realizing, oh my God, you can get almost any girl. Not to say that I'm, I don't mean that in a way like obnoxious, but I'm saying mm -hmm. yeah, all of a sudden a huge amount of girls that were very beautiful came, all became possible. So you're just like a kid in a candy store. Now at the age, you know, in my fifties, mm -hmm. right? Like I have a wife and like, she, I could barely handle her. Like mm -hmm. I'm like, <laughs> it's like, it's enough with, I have yeah. one woman to try to satisfy. Okay. Like I would be, the thought of even being with another woman is like fucking tiring to yeah. me. It's like, I, there's nothing, I'd rather jerk off than, than be another girl, you know? <laughs> hey, man. Let me ask you something. How did you guys meet? My current wife? Yeah. We met in Mexico when she was uh, modeling in, in Mexico and she's from Argentina and I was on tour and I saw her and we took a picture together. Uh-huh. And I had my assistant track her down on Instagram the next day and we started DMing each go. other and that's how it started. Was she like, hey, you're the Wolf of Wall Street. I know you're like this, you know, I'm type a pretty of good guy. salesman you're, still. That's what I was thinking. When it, like, comes, when it comes down to it, you know, it's I had to talk her off the ledge a few times yeah. in the beginning, but she's also smart enough to realize that the Wolf of Wall Street, like, well, is a character, it, came, well it came out in 2013. It happened in 99 and yeah. 91 and 90, this is a long time ago. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, she was willing to take the leap of faith 
to judge me as I am now, but I won't say that it's not difficult mm -hmm. for her and all the women. I had a wife before her was amazing too, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, and sometimes we'd back up on her that, you know, like, how do I trust you? Mm -hmm. But what she did, you know, I never cheated on her, but I think that at this point, it's kind of, I have a, I have a pretty decent track record of being faithful mm -hmm. under my belt. How did you know she was going to be someone that you want to, you know, be with long term? Like, how did you, like, what qualities about her were you like, wow, like, I'm falling in love with this person? I think nothing collapses time like a good old fashioned pandemic. You know, <laughs> yeah. we got locked mm -hmm. away together and during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you start to really see what it's like to be with someone 24 7, 365. Yeah. And, you know, we were really compatible. We we're living cool. at the time, I was living in a nice apartment. Uh, I live in a house now, but I was in an apartment at the time. And, you know, we got along really well in a, you know, relatively nice, but, you know, two bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Mm, that's interesting. And she's beautiful. She's sweet. She's from an amazing family. You know, she didn't speak a word of English when we met. So I learned Spanish to oh. speak to her. You know, so I learned Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish. But I learned Spanish very quickly. But now she's fluent in English, you know, so it's... Uh, that's cool. Yeah, but, um, you know, I think that you start to realize that there's always going to be another girl who's prettier, sweeter, allegedly, mm. you know, more of something like that. It's like the grass is it really, it's truly, there's one thing I could tell guys out there. It's like, you know, the devil you know is better than the devil that you don't know. Seriously, like, you know, there are no perfect relationships. There are no perfect women. And every girl's crazy because every guy is crazy. Mm -hmm. Every person, people are crazy. We're fucking all crazy. Yeah. So if you think you're going to find this perfect person out there who's going to basically just, you know, be this amazing partner. It's really the opposite. It's about, you know, do your imperfections match up well with her imperfections? Mm -hmm. And do you want to accept each other's shit and focus on the good stuff and, and build a life? And I, uh -huh. I think that that's something that you kind of learn the hard way, most of us, mm -hmm. is that we are in the beginning think this, oh no, they said something that, you know, how dare they? And like, I'll find better. <laughs> good luck with that, you yeah. know? So... Cool. Well, hey, I appreciate you being on the show, man. It's been, uh, you know, truly a dream of mine to have this. My happen. pleasure. I know you got to jet out of here. So I appreciate you. Thank you so much, man. Good luck. Thanks. No problem. Thank you. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.